This episode of Safe Space Radio is brought to you by Physicians for Social Responsibility and listeners like you. From WMPG, I'm Ann Hallward, a psychiatrist in Portland, Maine, and this is Safe Space Radio, a show about the subjects we would struggle with less if we could talk about them more. Today we continue our series on hidden emotions, stories and conversations about loneliness, guilt, jealousy, and today's topic, the humiliation of children in school. We have two guests who are each telling a story about something that happened 50 years ago. As we've been doing throughout this series, I'll be having a short conversation with each guest after they tell their story. We'll be exploring the staying power of humiliation, the way it shapes a child's sense of self, and how it impacts our friendships. Here's Deborah. Hi, my name's Deborah. I'm from Massachusetts. When I was in fifth grade, a new uh, administrator was brought into my small school district and he had innovative ideas. He'd come from the big city and they started an enrichment program, a special program in the afternoon for fifth graders in my, my little school. And I was one of the children who was included in this enrichment program. And they took us out on field trips one afternoon a week. I remember once going to a bank and seeing piles and piles of $1 bills, and it was exciting and fun being part of this group. So in the summer before sixth grade, letters went out uh, letting people know who was going to be in this new special class. And as it happened, for reasons that I never heard a single word about, I was not included, although my best friend was. I know that I found out, and I know nothing was ever discussed about it again. Neither my mother nor my father ever sat down and had a conversation or explained or, or um, comforted me about that. It was just simply a fact of life, and I went forward living with it. So the sixth grade began, and I would walk to my little red brick schoolhouse a couple blocks from my home, and the school bus carrying my friends, my closest friends, including my best friend, would drive past me every morning. And all my friends were sitting in their seats in the school bus heading off to their smart kid classroom. And I would be walking to my dumb kid classroom in the, in the uh, school that I continued going to. And uh, I don't remember... I actually don't remember feeling jealous. I remember feeling just humiliated and ashamed that it was so clear and visible and obvious to everybody that they were smart and I was stupid. There was nothing to argue about this. I could still picture myself walking through the hallways with the people I was still in school with and, and just thinking, here we all are, the stupid kids. So time went on, and we all ended up back in uh, junior high school together, uh, my best friend included. But that year had really ended our friendship. I mean, the summer before sixth grade, I think we had spent all our time together. I remember walking down the streets with her, sleeping over at her house. She's sleeping over at my house. But that year and the weight of that year, the shame and humiliation of that year um, really... Uh, just undid that friendship. And, you know, we weren't unfriendly to each other, but we weren't best friends anymore after that. I, I had to go find new best friends. 
So as time went by, I did okay in school. I actually started doing better and better in school. Then sometime around my junior year, I started doing really well in school and sometimes often getting better grades than other kids that I knew, which was hard for me to understand why that was happening, but it was happening. And then I uh, got better scores on my college boards than a lot of the people that I knew. And that was perplexing to me, but you know, nice. So then I went to the University of Michigan and graduated from there with honors and kept moving along in life and moving into my profession. And uh, as, as I'd moved through the world and get to know people who had, had gone to really good schools and really fancy degrees and I'd get to know people and talk to people, I, it would always, there would always be that little voice in the back of my head just kind of astonished that all these smart, interesting people would be open to being friends with me because, you know, I still had that, that badge of shame that I was wearing from those many years ago being a stupid kid. And, uh, I, I do remember one, the only time I ever brought this up, I'm remembering now my, my parents were actually good friends with this educator who had moved to town to start this special enrichment program. And uh, I saw him for the you know, rest of my life when that generation was still alive. And it took years and years and years for me to build up the courage to ask him if he remembered that I had been included in the special class in the fifth grade and excluded from the special class in the sixth grade. And I was probably in my 40s or 50s when I finally built up the courage to ask him that question which I could just feel the the tension and the shame in my body like deciding to open my mouth and approach him so I asked him did he remember and did he know why of course he had no memory no recollection meant nothing to him it was there was no information to be had and uh I, I I think I was probably, you know, well into my 50s before the truth that I held about that experience just gradually uh, dissipated and faded from my body and it ceased to be a defining uh, experience about me and my intelligence. It ended. so painful to think about carrying that for so long. Part of what strikes me is, is that 11-year-old girl that you were, that you took it as such a fact, as if they actually knew about you, as if their, their classification of you as so-called not smart was true or right. Well, I mean, this was spelled out to me in factual terms. The smart children were chosen and moved in one direction, and the ordinary or less than children were moved in a different direction and it was visible and completely enacted where it's there to argue with 
unless you have an interpreter, you absorb it as fact about you. Yeah. So I noticed you said that you didn't feel jealous of those kids that did get selected, that were riding that bus. And I'm curious, how come you didn't feel jealous? Because I could imagine feeling so jealous of them. I think jealousy implies more of the notion that you can compete. And my experience so disempowered me that it it wasn't, I, I had no no, no belief that I could compete on that level anymore. I mean, how can you compete if you're not in that category? There has to be some degree of empowerment behind jealousy. I'm going to strive for that. And I, I just consider the situation hopeless. So I, I know in my clinical training, I've often been taught that the response to humiliation is usually rage, deep anger. And you were treated in a really humiliating way. Did you feel angry? I don't remember having a consciousness of being angry because I don't recall knowing that what had happened was wrong. I simply took it as the fact, as the truth. I was being informed. So I think I became depressed but I don't think I felt entitled to be angry. Yeah, like that righteous, that feeling of righteous indignation. It's like you didn't have that. No, I didn't have righteous indignation because I assumed or accepted what was happening as being just. And when you, years later, 40 years later, when you talked to that innovator in education, did you tell, I understand he didn't have any memory of it, but did you tell him how painful that was for you? I didn't. I didn't because he was at that point, you know, an elderly man. It was, he was my father's best friend. My father was probably in the room when I was having this conversation. You know, I was, I was so, uh, you know, beyond needing to make a repair with him. So, no, I, I, I feel like I, I just took the hit. You know, it's I, I felt um, just the the deep awareness of, oh, my God, this this thing that really changed my life meant nothing to you, you who in some way helped to orchestrate it. Um, but. I think I felt disgusted by the whole thing. Um, but I did not have that conversation with him. And how is it for you to tell the story now? It was a story that was so silenced for so long. What is it like to tell it? Well, I've, I mean, I've told the story on occasion over the years, but until recently when I would tell the story, I would still continue to feel some of the shame inside my own, you know, my body. I could feel it. I mean, I've, I've worked with this story very intentionally, and I'm at a point now with it where I do feel empowered. I don't feel... Um, oppressed by it anymore. Um, I feel 
I feel so much tenderness and compassion for that child who lived through this torture. And it was torture um, with no support, with no guidance, no support. And, uh, but to tell it now is, I, I feel like the telling of it continues to liberate me from that, um, that, that position of shame and humiliation. So it's a good thing to tell the story. Part of what impacted me about this story is that here's this kid who effectively gets kicked out of the smart class, gets separated from her friends, and believes into adulthood that no one smart would find her interesting. And all of this happens without any acknowledgement, as if it was a non-event. What I know as a psychiatrist is that the traumas that take the longest to recover from are the ones that are not acknowledged. One reason is if you don't talk about them, you end up continuing to hang on to the ways you made sense of things as a child. And these false meanings become like burdens that limit your future relationships. Our next story is a more pointed story of humiliation, also from an educator. But in this case, it was deliberate. Here's Lane. My name is Lane, and I live in Falmouth. So this story comes from first grade. So I don't even remember what this teacher's name was. For some reason, I want to say it was like Mrs. McCracken, because that sounds so severe. But she was an older woman, the kind of woman who always had her hair curled at a beauty parlor twice a week into tight, unnatural kind of curls. It was hard to make her smile. And for some reason, I wanted this woman to love me. And I was not a particularly strong student. I was always talking to others around me. Every report card that went home, it was something about, you know, too distracted by her peers, etc. But despite that, um, I wanted this woman to think I was smart and I wanted her to care about me. And I don't know if you had that kind of childhood, but I I was always aware when adults didn't like me. I knew it in my bones. And somehow I knew that this woman just didn't like me. So I had made several attempts that year to sort of please her, what I hoped would be pleasing. Uh, There was a student named Harold Sloan who was sitting next to me at his desk, and we had some kind of art project where we had to draw animals from the desert. And Mrs. McCracken, or whatever her name was, came by, and she had really admired Harold's picture. And it was, I think it was a donkey. And I thought, wow, you know, she didn't say anything about mine. Maybe I had better draw one like Harold's. So I started drawing a donkey like his. And she came by and flew into a rage, it would seem like a rage to me at the time, and used this as an example for the class of what plagiarism was. She didn't call it plagiarism, she called it copying, and how bad copying was. And I had a series of incidents like that throughout this year of first grade. Back in those days, and they probably still do it now, there are different reading groups, and instead of saying like, the best readers or the second to best readers and the sort of so-so readers, they were color-coded. But everyone knew that the blue group was the best reader group and the red group was the second to best. And I was in the yellow group. 
which was kind of like the average reader group. And we were sitting in the yellow reading circle, and she was listening to the readers, and I was holding the book in such a way that I let it slip and a whole page ripped out of the book. And I remember immediately looking at her face because I would be able to read like how bad was this going to be. And she again stood up and said, children, I'd like you to see an example of how you do not hold a book. Lane here was holding the book in such a way that this page, this entire page, was torn out of the book. And now we're going to have to tape this page. And this book will be ruined. And every other child, after every year, will come by and they'll see this page that's been ripped out of the book. I, of course, was just so humiliated. And I don't remember her calling anyone out like she called me out. Anyway, so this is a series of events like that that led up to this culminating event near the end of the year. And we were straightening up the classroom and everyone, um, we had to do certain things. And one of the things that this teacher asked us to do was to locate all the missing puzzle pieces because we were straightening up the puzzle corner and there were some missing pieces. And other children were finding different puzzle pieces and she was praising them. So I thought, okay, I must find a puzzle piece. So I took a puzzle piece from one of the puzzles and stuck it in a turtle shell that was in the science corner of the room. And I went over to Mrs. McCracken and I thought, you know, this is going to be really special. Like, not only am I finding a puzzle piece, but I found a puzzle piece that was in a really, like, hard-to-find place. So I brought it over and I said, look, I found a puzzle piece in the turtle shell. And she, like, her face went blank. And then she became absolutely furious and her voice boomed out and she stood up and said, who put the puzzle piece in the turtle shell? And no one said anything. So she set up her chair in the middle of the room and she had us line up and one by one come before her and swear on a Bible which she had in her desk that I did not put the puzzle piece in the turtle shell. One by one, each child had to come up in front of her. And I was so terrified, but I stood in front of her and I swore that I did not put the puzzle piece in the turtle shell. So she had us all go and sit at our desks and put our heads on the desks. You know, you cross your hands on the desk and you put your head down. And she said that she was going to wait. Even if we were to miss the bus, she would not dismiss the class until the person who put the puzzle piece in the turtle shell identified themselves. In my mind, it was probably 45 minutes that we had our heads on the desk. And of course, you know, tears were, I was afraid that she'd, you know, see how 
the puddle that was accumulating on my desk. Um, and it was literally like two minutes before the buses were going to leave. And so I stood up and I said, I put the puzzle piece in the turtle shell. And she said, I knew it all along. Children, you may be dismissed. Lane Gregory, you stay right here. So the children are dismissed, allowed to go to their buses. And she has me sit and wait while she calls my parents. And my father came to pick me up. And she relayed the story to him, but in her mind, which reflected what a deceitful child I was, and that I was willing to put the class through all of this to just save myself. Fortunately, my father said to her, you've got to be kidding me. You know, the, all this child wanted was some praise from you. And you gave her none of that. And I'll be taking my child home now. And there was some um, redemption in having my father say that. But really what I wanted was something from her, which I never got. teacher she's such a horror such a horror I felt like I was listening to it and I was trying not to cry and I was also I just found myself sweating like literally breaking out into a sweat thinking about being that six-year-old the bind she put you in it feels so sadistic to me and I'm curious like with that child did you know how wrong and how cruel she was being or did you feel it so deeply as your error I felt that um, she had been able to identify me as the bad child that I was. And I knew that her intent was to expose the deceiver. See, that's what I did wrong. I thought it was creative. She saw it as this was some child's deliberate attempt to hide a puzzle piece. And I wasn't reckoning on that at all. I mean, that's what's so, in some ways so crazy-making about that story. It's like, who cares? You know, who cares about the damn piece in the turtle? You know, it's like right. the punishment was so extreme for something that couldn't matter less. It feels, in some ways, just so upsetting <laughs> to yeah. hear that and to think about what she tortured you. She yeah. really tortured you. Well, it, it's interesting in what it finally broke me was the fact that she was torturing the entire class. Or in my mind then is that I was torturing the entire class because I w had not admitted earlier on that it had been me that did it. When she said to your father that, quote unquote, you were willing to put the whole class through this, that just felt like such an outrage to me because she was the one who put the whole class through it. But a, a six-year-old, first grade, six years old, you're going to take that in so seriously as if it was your cruelty. Exactly. 
And also it segregates you so much from your friends and your peers. Like, Because I'm imagining that your friends at six wouldn't have the adult perspective to say, she was so cruel to you. I can't believe, like they didn't, I'm guessing they wouldn't have been able to give you that perspective. I don't think so. And classroom dynamics can often be, I'm so glad that it's not me that is the worst child in the classroom. There's sort of this sense of relief of, I'm so glad that it's, that it's someone else and then colluding with that in a way and, and a, agreeing like, oh, that is the rotten child. I was actually watching that inside myself. I think I did that as a child. I think that, I mean, because literally as I'm listening to your story, I'm thinking, wow, how outside the norm is this teacher? You know, is she really like the sort of nurse ratchet of, you know, one flew of the cuckoo's nest of teachers, you know, this sadistically cruel outlier? Or was this in my experience too? And the immediate thought I had was, I wonder if I even noticed it because I was so comfortable as the non-humiliated mm-hmm. child and maybe even feeling so righteous as that good child in the blue reading, reading group. Exactly. <laughs> that, uh, and so relieved that it was someone else that was getting shamed, and that also, I don't know if I saw it. And also that it was, of course, someone in the yellow reading group. Always. It would have never been someone in the blue or even the red. And then, but it couldn't have been anyone in the green because those were the children who really couldn't read or were mainstreamed in the classroom. So you couldn't, you know, they had difficulties of their own. So you had to go with the yellow. Right, so they were the sitting ducks. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, I I really feel like, for me, one of the gifts of your story is realizing how much that was true of me as a child, that I was colluding with that kind of cruelty, colluding with that kind of humiliation, feeling so relieved to escape it. Well, there is that relief. You know, I would have had the exact same response. That seems very forgiving of you, Lane. <laughs> Thank you. Um, the definition of shame that I love the most is the simultaneous experience of longing for connection with someone while feeling deeply unworthy of it. Huh, and it captures that sort of horrible, like, longing but cringing back and hiding, retreating feeling. That is such a perfect definition. And then I feel like, you know, I think what really touched my heart when you were talking a moment ago when you said, I feel like she exposed me for the bad child that I was. I'm curious to ask you, what do you think the legacy of that is? You know, you're, this is a few decades ago now. How do you carry it at this point? You know, there was so much that was internalized and that <clears throat> came out in adolescence in what I would now say was um, self-inflicted harm or I would put myself in positions where I could easily have been harmed or you know drank too much or promiscuity and it's really um, as an adult I have taken up the charge to try to call out what people are really trying to do 
I have a friend who has this little signature on his email and it says, always assume goodwill. And I love that because I, even though there are times when I, my little inner Miss McCracken can be there and can be judgmental or critical, I try very hard to rise above that and to understand what this person is doing and and how it might be serving them or how just try to understand um, and find the goodness in people and in their actions rather than jumping to an assumption that they're wrong or they're bad or they have, you know, mean intentions. And how different would that whole year have been if she, and the years that followed, if she could have seen the good intention and the longing that was behind you putting that piece in the turtle shell? I think that it would have made a huge difference to have had a caring adult in my life who was able to see the good in me, what I had to offer, and see me as lovable. And those adults didn't come along very often in my life. Well, I do want to give a great shout-out to your dad. The fact that he showed up and did not buy the BS of this teacher's explanation and defended you, even in a a small way, is profound and, and also pretty rare. I'm so glad for you that you had that. Yeah, my father loved us tremendously, still does. Lane, thank you so much for being my guest and for telling the story. I feel like it could be offered in teacher training curriculums nationally. (laughs) It was so my pleasure. This story makes me think of Poe Bronson's writing on children and lying. He says that the smarter a child is, the more likely they are to lie when faced with the threat of humiliation. This is precisely because humiliation like this is so unbearable. He argues that you should never set up a kid to feel humiliated because they won't feel safe to tell you the truth. The whole story is additionally poignant because all that Lane wanted was this teacher's approval and love. And the harder she tried to get it, the worse it was. Just like our first storyteller, Deborah, neither child could see that what was happening was wrong. Both feared it really was about something bad about them and then carried that uncertainty for decades. Two years ago, I interviewed Dr. Vincent Felitti about the impact of adverse childhood experiences on health in adulthood. His research suggests that of all the bad things that can happen to a child, including sexual abuse, physical abuse, or the death of a parent, the worst impact of all comes from emotional abuse, which he defines as chronic humiliation. It leads not only to more psychiatric illness, but also to greater incidence of heart disease, lung disease, lower income, and even earlier death. That really sobered me and points out just how destructive the Mrs. McCrackens of the world can be. Next week, we'll be wrapping up this series on hidden emotions. I'll be telling a story of my own, one that includes elements of guilt, jealousy, loneliness, and humiliation. And I'll be playing some highlights of an interview I did years ago with psychiatrist and former dean of UMass Medical School, Dr. Aaron Lazar, about shame and humiliation. If you like this show and want to hear more of our series on the emotions that we hide, you can like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at Safe Space Radio. 
While you're there, please leave a comment and subscribe to our email list to find out about each week's new show as soon as it's released. And if you want to be in touch with me, please email me at dranne at safespaceradio.com. That's D-R-A-N-N-E at safespaceradio.com. I'd love to hear from you. My thanks to Gabe Graben for producing the show and to Jim Russell for being our editorial advisor. Coming up next is Speak Freely. Speak Freely.